am thrilled to sit down today with Jennifer K. Hill, an absolutely extraordinary woman and, and truly inspirational sage. I know that you'll be very inspired by her story and learn so much from what she's learned and is going to share today from navigating a lot in her life. She has come so far. Jennifer Hill is an evolutionary leader, a global speaker, podcast host, author, and entrepreneur. She exited her first company in 2018 and is now building a software company called Optimatch, which has cracked the code of human connection. Jennifer can create a company like this because of the personal experiences that she has had throughout her life that has taught her so much. She listened, she downloaded so much information that came her way through her life experiences and put it all together and has done remarkable things. Welcome to the Sage Real Stories podcast, where we are hearing from real women who have a story to share. We face many different challenges as we navigate through this thing called life. But no matter what it is, someone has been there, has been through those woods and charted a path. These stories can be so valuable. They can inspire us, empower, make us feel like we aren't alone. At Sage, we're taking it one step farther and we are connecting you with that woman who has the story you need to hear. If there is a speaker you hear on this podcast series that resonates with you, email hello at sagelink.com and we will connect you. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this Sage Real Story. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for being a guest on the Sage Real Stories podcast today. Thank you so much, Linda, and thank you to all of the Sage listeners out there. As I was sharing with Linda before we went live, I said, listen, <laughs> this is no holds bars. I, I am as transparent as I can be without scaring people because some of it is a little scary and a little dark, if I'm being quite frank with you. it's. I was just on a call with somebody yesterday and telling them my journey of being a recovering jerk. And the guy I was on the call with is like, no, I'm like demoing the OptiMatch product. He runs a company, a large law firm. And he's like, no, you were not a recovering jerk. And I'm like, yeah, I was a recovering jerk. And uh, it all kind of started out of lack of understanding of myself and lack of understanding of others. In fact, I was recently doing an interview with Neil Donald Walsh, the author of Conversations with God. And we got into a fun argument about forgiveness versus understanding. And mm -hmm. I was talking Neil about this idea of like, hey, you know, what if as human beings, we could all forgive ourselves, and then be able to cultivate that forgiveness and compassion for one another. And I loved it because Neil challenged me. And this is one of the things that has really shaped my journey is to have people and be open to people who are constantly giving what another thought leader, Alison Armstrong calls positive resistance to anything you say, like we may have our paradigm or opinion on something. And yet, could we, for even a few seconds or a few minutes, open our minds and our paradigm up to something else? So when Neil challenged me yesterday, <laughs> to a funny conversation with my parents, I was just thinking of, uh, when Neil challenged me yesterday about forgiveness, he said, Jennifer, to forgive is to be hubristic, 
to understand is to be compassionate. Because if I'm saying I forgive mm-hmm. you, Linda, or I forgive anybody, I'm saying that I'm better than you and that you deserve forgiveness. Yet really, what if we could just cultivate this sense of understanding for why the choices we made, why the choices our exes made or our children or- I love that. Yeah, it was mind-blowing. I was telling this to my parents because I talk to my mom and dad every day. I'm very grateful having come from where I came from and had a very unhealthy relationship like many of us do with our parents when we're growing up. And so my mom and I always start talking on the phone and we start talking. My dad overhears this and he's like, well, I can't forgive you. I can't forgive you for any of this stuff. And he just starts messing with me because he doesn't, (laughs) they're adorable. Like I love my parents. They're perfect. But, you know, going back to where it all began is when I, when I was growing up, when I was in my early teens, late teens, early twenties, I would say self-hatred was, you know, what I would describe my life looked like because I couldn't understand myself. And it's funny because before the interview with Neil, I would have said I couldn't forgive myself, though now I would use the word understand. I really couldn't understand myself. I couldn't understand other people. And I couldn't, quite honestly, it's a bit emotional, I couldn't understand why I was alive. I really couldn't. I had three failed suicide attempts, two very close to being near death, in fact. One of them, I was uh, so committed. First, I went to go and try and jump off a building. I took my car down to San Diego and went to Balboa Park. But then I started having thoughts. I was like, well, what if I jump from three stories up and I don't die? Then I'm just going to be crippled. I don't know if I want that. So I went and bought a full bottle of Somonix sleeping pills that were over-the-counter sleeping pills. I think I was 18 years old. And uh, I took the entire box and somehow... I don't know how. Talk about hand of God, miracles, whatever you want to call it. My car, the Toyota Corolla, it was like one of those like peach-colored Toyota Corollas, one of my first cars, was literally hanging off the edge of a cliff because I had taken all these sleeping pills. It's hanging over the side. Somehow I had quote-unquote parked there. But instead of dying, I started hallucinating. And I started wandering around not knowing what was real or not. This was in the middle of the day. And by a true miracle, Linda, somebody who knew me, who's around my age, so she's not that old, like 19, 20, a year or two older than me, happened to be driving down this remote road 30 minutes from my parents' house where my car was hanging off the side of this ravine thing and found me out of my mind and got me to my parents into the hospital. And that was part of my journey. I was bulimic. I started throwing up when I was 15. God bless my cheerleading coach. You know, she, I have complete understanding. She was doing the best she could at that time. She told all of us cheerleaders, if you eat too much girls or you drink too much, you should stick your fingers down your throat, which led to me vomiting 20 times a day. It was it was part of the path though. That's the thing, Linda, is I don't have zero blame. I have nothing but love in my heart for this woman because me choosing, it wasn't that she did anything to me. I made the choice to be bulimic and to continue being bulimic for nearly a decade. And that also taught me one of my greatest strengths that I can be the most disciplined person in the whole wide world. Because what happened was, is I, when this happened, I one day all of a sudden did a personal development sort of a class and I made a commitment to myself, Linda, and I said, I am creating the possibility of being disciplined. And I went from throwing up 20 times a day to never throwing up again, ever. Like, what, what, what flipped that switch in you? 
Well, that was based on a neuroscience exercise. So this is why, you know, you were asking me earlier about the podcast regarding consciousness. This is why as an adult, I am obsessed with consciousness. I love it. I love talking to neuroscientists, quantum physicists, thought leaders. Just for the listeners here, you know, Jennifer has a really incredible podcast called Regarding Consciousness. And it's something, you know, you should definitely take a listen to. She, like, she's saying she has incredible thought leaders, what scientists, business leaders, and framing this in terms of what does consciousness mean to you? Um, but yes, please continue. I just wanted to give that background. Incredible podcast. Yeah. So thank you. I receive it. And, and that's what really was the catalyst for me was that incident when I was about, God, I was 25 years old. And actually, I'll, I'll paint the picture. It's might be a tear up a little bit. Um, so I was throwing up every day, 20 times a day. I was with my boyfriend at that point for about a year and a half. And we had both done this personal development class, which total other story about how I resisted it at first, but it did start to catalyze my growth. But I still had this shameful thing that I was throwing up. And not only that, I was also drinking quite a bit at that point. And I went there. And what was so extraordinary about this work they did is they look at what's so like, and I, I was so ashamed and so embarrassed to, I couldn't even write down, obviously believe me because my boyfriend didn't know, nobody knew. Mm-hmm. So I just wrote my health. I just wrote like, what's at stake out of me participating in this exercise was my health. And then I wrote down what wasn't working or not working as well as I, my health was at stake. I was throwing up all the implications of that, the depression, the self-loathing. And then you looked at what was missing that would make a difference. And so you start to come from a place of wonderment. So once you're able to come from a space of nothing, you begin to see, well, if I could create anything, what would I create in this moment? And that's what this particular organization called the distinction of creating a possibility. And I was like, wow, well, I guess if I was being disciplined, I just wouldn't throw up anymore. I would just have some faculty over how I'm interacting with alcohol or with eating or drinking or any of that. And in that moment, I created the possibility of being disciplined. And I shared it with everybody in the group, the five, six people there, my ex at the time and his brother. And uh, and that was it. And then the next day I didn't throw up. And then a week later, I sat down with my boyfriend at the time and told him over lunch, I've been bulimic the whole time we've been together. And I want you to know that session you did with Max transformed my life. Wow. Wow. I mean, so this is very interesting to me. And I would love to just dive just a little deeper in this moment for you because it clearly was very pivotal and eating disorder do you think that that was rooted in your so the depression do you think came first before the eating disorder is my first question how are they related in your mind so knowing what i know now about human physiology and the the integral link between our gut and our mental health and well-being, I think it's com si com sa. I think it's chicken and egg because I think that oftentimes, this is a terrible thing to admit, I don't think I've ever admitted this on any interview ever, ever, but I would often, if I was going to throw up, I would have a tub of ice cream because, God, this is horrible. If you ate ice cream and then the thing you wanted to throw up, it didn't taste so bad coming out and it was easier. So I say that because even people who think, oh, I'm just going to throw up and I won't have the ice cream in my system or whatever it is, you still do absorb some of the sugar. And so I'm sure that was not helping things. If you've read any studies or understand anything about the microbiome in our gut, that those of us who drink soda eat sugar. In fact, just today I was seeing my naturopath here in Lisbon and he's like, Jen, have you been having more sugar? And God, 
you know, I normally don't eat much sugar nowadays, very rarely, but God bless my husband now who uh, got me like two chocolate mousses and a tiramisu in the last week. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, about that, Jose. Yeah. Oopsies. <laughs> but it does show up in your body and it impacts yeah, everything. Not nourishing. Yeah. It's not nourishing and it's deplete. It's very depleting. Yeah. And so that was for me, I would say it's a chicken and egg question because it's yeah. hard to recall because I was in such a dark place, even from the age of like 11, 12 on. And I, I think I shared this with you. I only found out about five, six years ago, I was high functioning on the spectrum. And when I learned that I was like, oh, 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 that's why nobody made sense to me. Talk about that lack of understanding. People ask me now, well, how were you inspired to create OptiMatch? And I was like, it was out of survival. I literally had to look at people as though they were a logic puzzle. Like my brain loves logic puzzles. If apple can't be next to pear, but needs to be the left of tomato and to the right of peas, where do bananas go? You know, my brain is like, Ooh, yes, let's figure that out. And that's what was the catalyst for me, you know, wanting, not wanting, needing, necessitating to better understand people because part of the depression part of it is being you know, on the spectrum when I was younger and not knowing it, girls are very rarely diagnosed until much later in life. Mm -hmm. They're getting a little bit better about it. And I just was saying the wrong thing. I was bullied. Great example is when I was about 12 or 13, I had a girl who I thought was my friend. And it turns out this is very common of those of us on the spectrum is I had this girl who I thought was a friend and yet we can't identify like real friends or not. Like we don't actually have that um, trigger in our brains to understand whether somebody is being genuine with us. So she's like, oh, Jen, you have the best voice. This was English class. And I was like, Mrs. Ferguson's English class in middle school. Oh, Jen, you have the best voice. I'm seeing Janet Jackson again, long before American Idol or The Voice or any of these shows. And uh, I didn't know she was making fun of me. And she said, oh, Jen, you should sing in front of everybody. So she got 200 people, the whole school. And I started seeing security guards were there, but I didn't know until after that they were making fun of me. And so a lot of this all, I just didn't know. Like I didn't, I couldn't tell, like I'm very literal. So if you tell me something, I'll take it as literally whatever you said. It's really mind blowing to say you have all of these deep rooted um you know, thought processes in your brain at this point. And they are kind of, they've built tracks. And then suddenly you have this session and your mindset shifts and that's it. You don't throw up anymore. You literally stop throwing up forever. Yeah, forever. I just didn't. And again, I was also the same way. I think this, it also might be my literal brain, maybe because I'm on the spectrum. I don't know. Like literally, if I make a choice, then I can commit. I was doing tons of drugs when I was younger. And I remember at one point I was using methamphetamine for six months every day. And my, maybe I was like 17 years old or so. And same thing with that. Oh, that, that was a whole other ball of wax. My parents found a friend of mine in their house while we were traveling and who was on the drug and then put me on grounding. And I was like, okay, so I just stopped and then never did that again. So I've, I just have this uncanny ability to be very driven and do things that are, I can create any good habit or bad habit. <laughs> like most people can't understand. That's why one of my most recent books, I wrote 101 spiritual tools for uncertain times. That has been one of my gifts that for better or worse, I can create the world's best habit and maintain it for the rest of my life ad nauseum. Like, for example, meditation. I haven't missed a day of meditation in 11 years since I began. I haven't missed a day of inner child work in five years. So 
I can create really amazing habits. I can also create really unhealthy habits. And so I don't know if it's unique to my brain or all of us. That's really interesting. And it's, you know, this term neurodiverse, I, I don't know if you, do you like the term neurodiverse? I do. In fact, yeah, I love it. I was just uh, doing a talk on that uh, on an island in Croatia with some entrepreneurs and really helped a lot of people realize they were neurodiverse. Five or six people are like, oh my God, they've since emailed me. I'm on the spectrum. No, I'm on the spectrum. I'm like, And I love know. it because, you know, I, it's, it's, it's not saying that there is, you're not at a um, disadvantage. I think you have a, a real big advantage in how you've um, actually emerged from some of these dark places in your life to healthy habits because of the way your brain works. And I think that looking at it as a diverse brain <laughs> um, and, and diverse way of, of, of going about thought processes, I think is such a better, a better way to look at it. Yeah, it's a, it's a superpower as my co-founder is neurodiverse. I have, a, looking back, you wind up finding out a lot of your closest friends at one point, probably many people I hired were, you know, you don't even realize it. And neurodiverse just means that our brain works slightly different than the average person. So it could be ADHD, it could be, um, you know, issues with reading, with learning, also dyslexia, for example, and none of it is bad. It's like all things, we have this tendency as human beings, this is bad, this is good, this is right, this is wrong, where it's really more of a beautiful spectrum, as they call it a spectrum, yeah. you know, of these possibilities of how we can choose to engage with ourselves in the world, though, you know, for those of us who may be neurodiverse or on the spectrum, it can be challenging sometimes to engage in what other people might consider good or normal ways. Like I was constantly saying faux pas. I can only see it now. Like I was mm -hmm. constantly saying faux pas or saying things that would offend people or talking too much because I wouldn't be able to read social cues and tell mm -hmm. that, oh, this is an appropriate time to stop talking and give another person an opportunity to talk. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that um, being challenging and especially that, you know, the very literal, uh, that must've been so difficult in middle school. I can really imagine that. What the, the ability to kind of put your mind towards these other ways of, I guess, approaching problems and in, in, in healthy habits, walk us through some of the biggest take-homes there that you feel are the most powerful and effective that have helped you the most and that you love to share, as you said. Yes. Uh, one of my favorites, Linda, is intentions. I love the power of setting intentions because it's like having guardrails to life. When we set intentions, it allows us to then move into that future, move into what we want to do. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further and I'll share something, uh, an interview that's going to be out soon with a brilliant man who I got to interview. He's been on Oprah, worked with Ram Dass, Dalai Lama, all these amazing people. And I'm now, I've been doing intention setting for, God, probably a decade. And I'll go through my old process and then I'll share with you what Jonathan Robinson just shared with me that was life-changing. So my methodology that I've been using for probably well over a decade now is one, every Sunday, I set my weekly intentions. This was more of a CEO technique that I had read years ago that great CEOs take two hours to set up their week. I scan through my meetings. I look at, is this what I'm committed to? I set intentions. Who do I want to ontologically be in the meeting? So it's not just from a goal setting standpoint, I'm going to do this 
podcast with Linda, like if I were to look at my intentions for you and I for this week, it was probably enjoy a loving, dynamic, playful interview with Linda where I'm authentic and present. Mm -hmm. You know, that might be an intention I would set before an interview or a meeting, you know, draw the right investors towards me, whatever it is. I have all of these ontological and then I actually have the KPIs or numeric things that I want to do. So I do that every Sunday. First of the month, I always set my intentions for the coming month. And then I also set daily intentions. So I set, and in fact, Melissa Bernstein, who we were talking about before this, I loved a technique she taught me, which was, you know, you pick your top three things a day that you must complete and you do not do anything else on your list until you've accomplished those three things. So love that. Melissa Bernstein from Melissa and Doug, just for the listeners here, very successful entrepreneur. Uh, Great tip. I love that. She's been extraordinary just as a friend, mentor. And fast forward, though, to Jonathan Robinson. So a couple of weeks ago, I was doing an interview with him. He's written, I think he's reached 200 million people, if you can imagine. He's like, my goal, talk about setting intentions. And I give this for a very specific reason. Jonathan told me when he created the system, he was living rough. I think he was homeless at the time. Mm -hmm. And when he created the system that I'm about to share with you, he and his friend who were like living in a van at the time, His friend wanted, I think, to make $200 million, and he wanted to impact 200 million people. This was 20 years ago. And when I spoke with him, he had just accomplished that, and so had his friend. And here's the technique that they've used to get people off heroin, to get people off cocaine, to get people off of everything. You write out a a list. Actually, I'll give you a sample of what it is. He he wrote about it in his book that I, I can tell you because... I have an accountability buddy as well that really helps. She and I do a call Mm -hmm. every single day for 10 minutes, 15 minutes to share what we're accountable for and to listen for Mm -hmm. any, you know, any support we need. So here's the languaging. I'll tell you mine for this week. I, Jennifer Cahill, CEO of OptiMatch, agree to complete the following items by Monday, December 4th, 2023. So this is before I even saw Jose today. I could tell my body was not happy with the sugar. Remove all sugar, gluten, alcohol, and carbs from my diet until Monday, uh, December 4th. So I'm going to try it out for a week, see how it goes. Uh, Reach out to 20 or more early stage investors via LinkedIn or using my assistant's help. Get back to Mac, who's the guy who's rewriting my uh, speaker website get one or more paying OptiMatch clients and write one or more of the how to use OptiMatch manuals for a client. For each item I fail to complete by one week from today, I agree to rip up or throw away $1. So this is the technique that he put in there and you reset it every Sunday. But he said the human con, again, going into consciousness, the human consciousness and psychology around money is that we will give up heroin, bulimia, whatever it is, to not tear up that dollar bill. Wow. I'm going to try this. This is incredible. And it's like a contract with yourself. And you sign it. It's not, it's, yeah, this is amazing. And there's a consequence. How, how do you know how lofty of goals? Like, so does it take some trial and error to see what's sort of doable or... I feel like I would start off and maybe set too lofty of goals or not, you know, lofty enough. How do you gauge that? I think that we have this opportunity to, to be present and to really ask ourselves what we're capable of. When I work with coaching clients, I often coach CEOs and executives. 
I tell people that you always want to choose something that feels uncomfortable. Like for me, I don't eat sugar often, but I eat it probably once a week or so. And again, I, I do love French fries. French fries are my jam. Like that's more than sugar or anything. You could give me French fries every day, yeah. all day. I love French fries. So giving up potatoes, let alone French fries for a week, that is well outside the scope of what I know myself to be capable of. That's much harder for me than the sugar or anything else. So that's definitely challenging. So when I'm working with an executive or mentoring or coaching someone, I always tell them you want to choose something that's slightly uncomfortable, like whatever you're comfortable with, you want to pick something 10 or 20% beyond that, whether mm -hmm. it's the amount of money you want to make, asking for a raise. There was somebody brilliant I was just talking to about that recently about a raise and her finger slipped. She accidentally wrote to her coaching client. She said, ask, it was a man. And she said, he's negotiating an offer. She says, ask for a 35% increase on the offer. Now her finger had slipped and she didn't see it because her glasses weren't on. So she thought she told them a 15% increase. But you know, here he's this guy. And he a 35% increase. And she's like, you owe me a commission on that. I love this. And it's, it's almost like, so how does this differ? Do you think from manifesting this fit, the term manifesting, I think it became kind of trendy a while ago. How do you see this as different than that concept? So different people will tell you different things about manifesting. On the one hand, a lot of people are very adverse to the term right now because they say there's nothing to be manifested. We are all things and everything. Mm. And so I, I moved away from manifesting personally. I look at more at miracles. Uh, another brilliant thought leader, Dr. Todd Ovakaitis was on a show I was doing a few years ago. And I was sharing with Dr. Todd, one of my evening practices, which was, you know, every is every night before I go to bed. I love to do what I call spiritual accounting. I talk about it in one of the books. And what I do is I write down, how could I have lived today better? Things that nobody, Linda, might ever know. You know, maybe I was rude to somebody. Like today, if I'm being totally honest, could have been a little bit kinder to somebody on Fiverr. I needed them to edit some audio and I'm running around. It's like the third time they're editing. I'm like, what is going on? And so that's going to go on my list today of how Jen Hill could have lived today better. Could have been kinder, compassionate, maybe a little bit more patient with the person on Fiverr. They're doing the best they can. I get that. I should probably send them an email saying that after this <laughs> podcast. So how could you have lived today better? Writing down, just reflecting on not from a judgment, but from an observation standpoint to bring conscious awareness to it. Two, what are you proud of yourself for? Did you not have sugar today? Did you not have French fries with a second you know, set of French fries? Whatever it is, nobody else might ever acknowledge or appreciate you, but mm -hmm. you know what? You can appreciate yourself. Mm -hmm. And then writing down the three things you're grateful for. So Dr. Todd challenged me when we were doing this interview, and he said, Jen, I'm going to challenge you to do three more things. And most people are like, ah, that's already a lot Jennifer just shared, but I actually really love what Dr. Todd shared. He said, I also want you to write down the moments of awe, synchronicity, and miracles in your life every day as you're going to bed. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. So it was a few weeks later, I was in LA, I was staying in an Airbnb and about to move to a hotel. And as I was sitting there, Linda, I was setting my morning intentions again. Every day I said, okay, how do I want the day to go? And I was like, hmm, well, I wonder what Dr. Todd said. I wonder if I could set an intention to receive 10 or more miracles, not just to look for them at the end of the day, but could I receive 10 or more miracles? So I write that down. And much like the woman at the deli, my finger slipped and wrote 19. So I went to hit delete. I'm like, 19 miracles. That's asking a lot of the universe today. So I go to delete and I was like, 
you know what? Screw it. Who am I to deny the universe giving me nine extra miracles? So that then began, began a practice for me of asking the universe for 19 or more miracles a day. Nowadays, it's more closer to 30. And then what you do is instead of looking at like manifestation, you are looking for all the miracles. I teach a mastermind on this. We have students around the world. And what I love is when you can appreciate the little miracles, like this morning, I walked my dog at 6 a.m. And he, we didn't get rained on. Like, oh my God, it's a miracle. If you've ever had to walk a dog in the rain, it's not fun on the yeah, slippery exactly. streets of Lisbon. So for me, I would write that down as a miracle. I've had, and then the miracles, when you can begin to appreciate the little ones, this goes in back to the whole consciousness and neuroscience standpoint. At a conscious level, Linda, our brain is processing billions with a B, bits of information, second by second by second at a, so that's at the subconscious level. At the conscious level, our brain is only processing, get ready for it, 50 to 120 bits per second. So if I am putting on my miracle looking for, you know, uh, glasses or lens or headset, whatever you want to imagine, then I am going to be focusing my attention on the 50 to 120 bits of information per second that validate the miracles in my life. So that's one of the things I teach in a class I facilitate. I, I would love just for you to not end this podcast without touching upon something that I think was very powerful when you and I chatted about how you, you started off this podcast episode mentioning that you're a recovering, recovered jerk. Is that the right mm -hmm. term? Yeah. Well, unless it depends on where this is airing, because there's another word we could use, but jerk is the most PC word. <laughs> yeah. Well, We'll, we'll leave it at jerk. I think everyone understands. Um, but, you know, you, you've come so far in, in your ability to have not forgiveness, but compassion and mm -hmm. understanding. And I would love for you to just talk through that a little bit, because it really struck me when we last chatted that this has been a really big actually scaffolding to, to setting yourself up for your success and connecting with people and being able to, you know, or I guess what has allowed you to o overcome being that jerk? Is it compassion, understanding, being present? Talk us through that, that part of it a little bit and how that has helped you get to where you're at today. Yeah. One of my favorite stories that I often use when I'm speaking to highlight this, you know, story to give people a sense of a what a jerk I was, and also be where you can go to if you are a jerk. <laughs> so that way we can all be recovering jerks anonymous, or not so anonymous in my case. So one of the things that I like to share is there was a woman I worked with, and she was one of my first employees, and she's a human being. She makes mistakes, though often we all have done it. Could be our spouse, could be our friend, could be our colleague. Somebody makes a mistake, and we make a mental note of it. And then somebody makes another mental note where I, oh, I know how this is going to go. Like we've already played out the story in advance, right? And that's how it was going with this particular person. And she wound up, uh, you know, not returning a couple of client phone calls. I was getting really frustrated. And thank God we all need to have a coach at some point or another. I had hired a business coach around that time. And two very important things happened that helped me begin to shift how I saw the world and myself and others. One is he challenged me when this was happening and I was like, oh, I can't deal with this anymore. And he said, Jen, what if the reason she is a disappointment is because you 
are looking for her to be a disappointment. As like, how dare you? The nerve that I have all the things right here. I have the missed calls, blah, blah, blah. So in the same way we just talked about from a neuroscience standpoint, there's only 50 to 120 bits per second that we can focus on out of all the billions of bits. So he said, Jen, I'm going to challenge you one day or every day for the next week. I want you to write down one good thing she's doing, one thing she's doing right. And so I, the first day was like pulling teeth, right? It was like, oh, I can't even think of it. Fine. I committed to doing it. I'm obviously a very committed person. So I'll do this stupid exercise. So I do it. And I was like, yeah, I guess she did that well. So the second day comes by, I was like, hmm, yeah, she did a good job with that. Third day, by the end of that week, Linda, she was on fire. Like it set the precedent and her escalation went so far up. She continued to be more and more and more successful and wound up being the executive vice president who took over my company after we sold it. And that would not have been possible if I had continued to look at her like a disappointment. Were you giving her feedback when, when the things that you were identifying? Well, so when you're a recovering jerk or when you're a jerk at the time and not quite recovered yet, feedback is a very soft term that we could say. Feedback, like imagine we've all been on the receiving side of somebody being a jerk to you. Yeah. And you know, my version of feedback was more punitive. It was more like, are you kidding? You didn't do this right. You didn't, we've all been there. We've been beings, right? So feedback is a very generous term <laughs> that I don't think I deserve to be able to use for that point. And I will say the second thing that happened that was instrumental, my business coach, Julian is a pioneer in human design. And I didn't know what that was. And he did my human design and the whole team. Well, it turned out she's a projector which is what I am. And projectors make amazing leaders, wonderful managers. Yet I had her in a worker bee role to like do, 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 which was breaking her. It wasn't good for her. It wasn't healthy for her. And so then when I brought the conscious attention to that and we shifted her role and put her in a manager role, she was phenomenal. The team still loves her as far as I understand. And they continued to love her. I mean, she was an instrumental team member there. And so this all happens. And that's what then led us to develop Opti matches. I originally said to Julian, I said, Jules, why don't we just match two people based on human design? And he mm -hmm. said, A, human design is not designed for matching people. B, he said, your gift intuitively for matching people is much better. So that's how we wound up spending eight months, you know, picking my brain and figuring out, well, mm -hmm. how do I match people? And then we created it into a mathematical formula, which became OptiMatch. What a gift to have been able to see this play out and then and then recognize that this was something that could be valuable for so many reasons and then putting that into a tool based on what's in your brain coming from that i mean it's just brilliant the whole thing and take a moment to really explain what optimatch does for the listeners because we've just touched upon it but what does it do what what does the actual tool do so OptiMatch, and thank you for the time. It's my baby. I'm so excited to yeah. share it. We just had Web Summit and made it available to the public. And it's been humbling to see how excited people are about this. Like people are planning to use it in ways, use cases we would have never even imagined. We're like, okay, you guys want to use it this way? Let's build the features and, you know, have our dev team work yeah. on it. So we designed it originally to match people with therapists and coaches because we had a platform with a hundred therapists on it and we wanted to test it out and say, okay, 
you know, what if it's a huge issue? And as somebody who struggled deeply with mental health and depression, I was like, we could save lives with this. So that's how it started. And we got to an 87% satisfaction rate testing it. We were just like, wow, we reverse proved it. It was working great. So any two people can answer these 20 questions and we create an overlay of motivating factors. And this is the biggest thing that two things nobody's ever done before. One, two people have never built a software from the ground up to match people. Um, you know, aside from Tinder, which is very use case specific, <laughs> you know, it's less of a matching, more of a preference thing. And two is it's based on motivating factors. So most anything out there that you'll find, we've talked ad nauseum with our medical advisory board team about this, you know, Enneagram, Myers, Briggs, DIS, they're all brilliant. Those are personality tests. This mm. is taking a snapshot of how you're motivated as a human being. You know, one day, all of a sudden it turned out we weren't expecting this it's being going like wildfire in the HR world. We turned around a Web3 company in less than three weeks. We turned around, I used it to hire my own assistant. You know, well, that's one more- what I think is so incredible is this idea that like your the personal story of what you were able to do with this woman and, and how that turned out is essentially, would you say what you're, now you can make available to everybody through Optimatch. Yeah, anybody can go to om.app, O-M.app. Thank you, Universe, for that website. That was a blessing. <laughs> you know, yeah, so easy. That's a good one. <laughs> so anybody can go there and request a free demo. And quite frankly, that's all I'm doing. We have people who work with the Navy. We have people who worked at Apple. And like, it's just mm-hmm. been so humbling. Everybody's like, I want to teach it in universities. I want to do this. And I'm like, oh, gosh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so we're just. Uh, Maybe we getting- can integrate it into SageLink and help yeah. women connect. You know, we're topic-based matching. So. So, uh, you know, for the, any listeners who don't know what SageLink is already, uh, we we match you with a woman who has been through a life experience that you are currently grappling with. The platform is in it's being, you know, rebuilt into a, a mobile app right now, but it will be launching in early in 2024. But, you know, perhaps we can collaborate and and have more precise matches based on your technology in SageLink. I can't wait to talk offline about that. I would love that. Yeah, I would love it. I mean, even committees. I was talking to a guy last night who I was demoing. He's like, I sit on committees and then somebody new comes on. Nobody knows. I was like, you could do this with any organization, anything, and have the mentor. Imagine you start a new company. You don't feel aligned with somebody. Well, if you have a mentor assigned to you or you're on a committee, you have a mentor assigned to you, and that person is very closely aligned, that reduces friction significantly and you feel safe. 83% of U.S. workers suffer from stress-related, uh, stress work-related stress or anxiety mm-hmm. or depression. And so it's like, my God, this is our dream is to reverse the accidental adversarial relationship between human beings. Yes, I love that. And, you know, using technology to build more meaningful, you know, relationships, kind of getting a leg up on those really is, is how I see it. It's beautiful. It's really remarkable. I love it. Based on all of what you've learned, all of what we've talked about on this podcast, what are some just real take-homes for anyone that's seeking to be jerk-free, open, present, compassionate people when connecting with other human beings? So two things, Linda, come very strongly to mind that I'll share. One is Doug Knoll wrote a book. I think it's called De-Escalate. It was just referred to me. And if somebody is upset to just call out what they're feeling. So 
wow, you're really angry right now. And often just by acknowledging what's so for another human being, it allows you to quickly and effortlessly, I guess, in Doug Knoll's book, he talks about how you can de-escalate any situation in 90 seconds. A wonderful new friend named Gio just referred it to me. And then two was uh, one day I was in a meditative experience and I received one of the most profound pieces of wisdom I've ever received. And I, it is my mantra every day when it comes to human beings. Everyone is doing the very best that they can in every moment, and that includes you. And if we can always remind ourselves of that, even when somebody else is being reactive, even if you have a two-year-old screaming or you know, somebody forgot to do something, you know, what if we could remember that everyone is doing the best they can in every moment, and most importantly, so are you. Incredible. Yeah, I, I love that we've come full circle on that compassion and understanding piece. It's so crucial, you know, just for, you know, navigating this life and recognizing too that everyone has either doing the best that they can, you know, because we all have backgrounds, you know, stuff going on in the background. There's this very powerful <clears throat> Um, I want to say it was the Mayo Clinic. There was a very powerful video that a hospital system put out where patients are walking in the hallways, family members are visiting, and it's taking you through a day in the life inside a hospital. But everyone has a bubble above their head. And so what our perceptions are of, you know, this, this woman who's looking kind of grumpy in the elevator, but her husband just got diagnosed with, you know, three weeks to live. And, you know, we all have these thought bubbles. And you mentioned something that, that made me think, you know, giving, we should give, giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I think it's kind of what I, I take from that is seeing them as people that, are doing the best that they can and, you know, giving them that space. And also the de-escalation pieces, sometimes they, they need to feel that understanding. That is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, in a nutshell, helping understand that people need to be understood. And I, I think what you've learned, Jennifer, along your path is, so beautiful and I am in awe of you and everything that you have been able to overcome and where you have gone in in your evolution as a as a human is is remarkable and inspiring any last thoughts for our listeners Hey, thank you, Linda. Thank you for your generous and kind and open listening. I just, I can tell you're an amazing leader yourself because you're just, you're like a sponge. You, you receive it. And that's probably why you're so great at leading Sage and your team over there. And I will say the other thing that comes to mind, it was a quote I saw right before I hopped on with us today. And it's a quote that I'd love to leave everyone with today. And ironically, I didn't realize this quote until I saw it. It's actually on the first page of my memoir. I'm writing another book right now with a friend of mine. And he wanted to see the first few pages of my memoir. And so I pulled it up right before I call. And lo and behold, my favorite quote of all time, I forgot. It was from Neil Donald Walsh, who I just interviewed. So I'll share it with you now. Let this be your greatest task. Let this be your greatest joy. To give people back to themselves. Even in their darkest hour, especially in that hour. And that is my purpose. Wow. What does that mean to you, to give people back to themselves? What it means is that 
just like I was a lost soul. God, it's it's so apropos. I was just watching with my husband this weekend the movie Soul. Have you seen that from Pixar? So great. Okay. Part of it is you have these lost souls. And people who are lost souls are covered in darkness. They have so much fear, resentment, betrayal, anger, etc., that you can no longer see your light and they can no longer see their light. So I think, I've never said this before, but the thing that I see of giving people back to themselves is to find that thread of light. And in the same way, you have an ember of a fire to blow on that light, to nurture that light, to allow that light to turn into a burning fire that allows that person to come back into the lightness of who they are as a human being. The chills. I have the chills. That is, wow, what a way to end this episode. Jennifer, you are a beautiful human being. Thank you for sharing all of this sage wisdom and insight with our, with our listeners. Mm-hmm.